Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petro Medical. Hey everyone, Omar M. Khatib, Director of Growth here at Petro Medical. We have another fantastic edition of Hills and Valleys for you. Uh, this time we have the honor to interview another great leader in healthcare, and that's Kevin Mahoney, who's the CEO at the University of Pennsylvania Health System. Um, now, as a CEO of the University of Penn Health System, he has a brand that's known uh, for being an advocate for world-class healthcare innovation, uh, from future Ford hospitals to cell and gene therapy breakthroughs. And he really is dedicated to serving the community and empowering uh, their team to provide the very best patient care and experience every single day. Now, this is something that I noticed very quickly on LinkedIn as Kevin and I are connected and I paid close attention to the kind of posts he had about um, how his team responded during this pandemic and all the great things they were doing. Now, a little uh, background on him. So beginning in 1996, his leadership posts at Penn Medicine included things such as being the executive vice president, chief administrative officer of UPHS, as well as the executive vice dean of the Perlman School of Medicine and the senior vice president of UPHS. As you can tell, he's been, he's been at Penn for quite some time and so he knows the culture of innovation and the legacy that Penn has. He also served as the executive director of the Phoenixville Hospital um, and the executive director and chief operating officer for Clinical Care Associates and the director of the network development. Now, Kevin's operational portfolio at Penn is definitely worth touching upon so you really understand um, the caliber and the experience that uh, Kevin brings to Penn Medicine for having been there since 1996. He's had roles that included things such as informational technology, strategic planning, the primary care network, HR, and capital planning. And he's led several transformative construction pro projects which have expanded and enhanced Penn Medicine's clinical care, teaching, and research missions. Uh, things such as the Smilo uh, Center for Translational Research and the Henry H. A. Jordan M62 Medical Education Center. And he oversaw the implementation of a common electronic health record platform across five hospitals, numerous outpatient clinics, and home care. Uh, and it's really the only comprehensive system of its kind in the Philadelphia region. Now, he directs the development and construction of a new $1.5 billion hospital, the Pavilion, on Penn Medicine's West Philadelphia campus, which will house the inpatient center for the Amberson uh, Cancer Center, Heart and Vascular Medicine and surgery, neurology, neurosurgery, and a new emergency department, a really big undertaking. And the pavilion, which will be the largest capital project in Penn's history, is expected to be completed in 2021. Now, prior to joining uh, uh, Penn Med, uh, he served as the vice president for Johnson Higgins, where he provided leadership to the health group, including the uh, risk transfer and alternative risk management strategies. He also served as the VP for administration for nine years at Bryn Mawr Hospital and the director of administrative services for Episcopal Hospital for three years. He's a graduate of Millersville State College where he earned a bachelor's degree in economics and holds an MBA and a doctorate from the Fox School of Business at Temple University. So I mention all of this so you understand the 
depth and experience that Kevin really brings. And more importantly, a very rare combination where having a CEO of a hospital who has really grown up through the ranks over the last two decades there before taking over the helm. So without further ado, very excited to uh, launch into this episode. Enjoy it. And here is our interview with Kevin B. Mahoney of PenMed. Hey everyone, Omar M. Khatib, Director of Growth here at Petro Medical, and we have a fantastic interview lined up for you today. I'm very fortunate and lucky to grab a little bit of time with Kevin Mahoney, who's the CEO of PenMed. Uh, we got lucky and connected on LinkedIn, and after seeing uh, his story and the wonderful things that him and his organization are doing, I knew that we had to have him uh, on the show today. So, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Omar, I'm really pleased and I'm going to enjoy the next uh, 50 minutes or so that we spend together and hopefully informative to your audience. Definitely. Definitely. It's going to be a lot of fun. So let me ask you the first question that I think is on a lot of people's minds. So, you know, Penn is a uh, $7.8 billion healthcare system. And historically, in my opinion, one of the most historic hospitals in the United States. I know some of my friends at Hopkins and Harvard might get upset with me. But it was the first hospital in the United States. You were there for 23 years, dedicated, patient, and you just took over the helm in July. And now we get hit with a pandemic your first year, right? What kept you at Penn for 23 years when you could have very easily gone any, anywhere else you would have wanted to go? Yeah. So um, thanks for uh, the kind words on, on Penn Medicine. As you said, the nation's first hospital. Uh, we still operate it down at 8th and Spruce, and that has given us inspiration during this um, pandemic because the yellow fever, uh, the, the Spanish flu in 1918, and, um, you know, we, we have a history of stepping up and, and helping our country. So uh, th- this was definitely in our, our wheelhouse. Uh, wheelhouse. What, what I think is important uh, from my perspective is this first year of being the CEO I've seen an acceleration of trends. You know, we, we hear uh, the new normal, the world's never going to be the same. And what I think COVID actually did was accelerate trends that were already underway. And uh, we've had a number of hospitals close in the Philadelphia area. And financially, the hits have just been huge over the last six months. And I think you're going to see an acceleration of hospitals closing, which means we have to do more home care, more ambulatory care, more virtual care, because we're not going to have that traditional inpatient capacity that is defined the American healthcare system. The, the trend to uh, telehealth, you know, was well underway before COVID. It's not like we woke up and said, let's start virtual health. Um, but man, it sure accelerated it. You know, we, we had done, I, I, I think I, I quote, 150 telemedicine visits in the first two weeks of March. And by the end of April, we've done 400,000 telemedicine visits. So again, we had the infrastructure in place. It's not new, but it it certainly accelerated the the trend uh, significantly. I think another another, uh, topic, Omar, that um, I, I get asked a lot about is work from home. And, you know, we, we spend over $55 million a year on office leases. And our, our solution had been put everybody in smaller and smaller uh, cubes, open work, you know, workbenches, trying to get more people into uh, smaller and smaller space because of the cost of the annual leases. And again, I, I think 
we recognize that was an undue burden that cost COVID has pointed that remote working at home, uh, properly organized, has been beneficial to us financially and, and to many of, many of our employees. And, and we've been following that, that trend now for uh, you know almost six months and we learned a lot out of that. Amazing. Now, one thing I'm, you know, a lot of times when I look at uh, ho- hospital executives, especially at, you know, America's top uh, institutions, I like to see it. I'm a sports fan, so I, I see it very much like, um, you know, great uh, college football coaches or college basketball coaches where, you know, if you're at a one at a very top tier program, it's very easy to say, you know, I'm kind of eager to leave and let me go, you know, take over the, you know, the head at somewhere else. And so you were at Penn, you know, since 1996. And so the best part about that is that, you know, their organization inside and out culturally, mm-hmm. from a business standpoint, you know, what, what kept you there? And, and did you see yourself at what, at what point did you see yourself taking over the, the helm? Well, um, I, I, you know, I'm a man of great confidence in my abilities. So I thought like the first day they should name me the CEO, but it, it took them uh, a couple decades to uh, uh, to get around to that, but but let me just, if I can, address your your question directly. Penn Medicine has a unique culture, and we we are one of the few private uh, health systems that's owned by the university. So we're not we're not separate from the university. We are part of the university. If our if our health system gets a bond upgrade, the university gets an upgrade. If, we get a downgrade, they get a downgrade. So we are tightly, tightly linked. 60% of the, the operating margin from the health system goes back to fund research at the university. 25% goes back to fund education. So you, you have a, a culture and an ethos where uh, I, I read a lot. Uh, Omar, we were talking about this earlier, our, our uh, love of reading military history and some things. And General Dempsey has a new book out and um, he was the chair of the Joint Chief of Staff. When he took over Fort Riley in Kansas, it was the first time they put an armor unit with a cavalry unit with a military police and everybody were all of a sudden thrown together. And it was the first time the army had reorganized trying to save money and break down these silos. So they, you know, they all wore cavalry hats and he was having a hard time getting everyone together. And, and he said, what does it mean if you're in the cavalry and it said, we're a scout. And he said, whenever I stop somebody at Fort Riley, I'm going to ask them what they do. And they're going to answer, I am a scout. So if I ask the infantryman, I'm a scout. The armor, the kitchen, everybody says, I'm a scout. I translate that to Penn Medicine. We are all cancer researchers. Mm. I might be doing revenue collection. I might be cleaning the rooms. I might be a nurse. But if 60% of everything I do goes back to cancer research and heart disease, I'm a researcher. So when one of our guys wins a Nobel Prize, we won't get to go to the party. But we can say to our grandkids, we can say to our neighbors, we can say to the guy at the sporting events or, you know, in the future, hopefully back in, inside a restaurant, said, I was, I'm part owner of that Nobel Prize. I made it happen. And, and I think that ethos pulls everybody uh, in in the same direction at Penn, and it's a glue that has kept me there and has kept so many of my colleagues there. Uh, it, the, the, the turn, it, I'm not the only lifer at Penn. 
Well, you know, I was going to say some of these towards uh, towards the end, end, but you know, this is actually kind of a perfect one. So uh, you're very popular on LinkedIn. I, I did a post just last night, not even you know a couple of days ago. I, I did a post last night, and we had um, well over 50 people engaged with it, asking questions. So I have an interesting question regarding Penn's uh, culture. So this is from my close friend uh, Giovanni Laricella. Uh, many people know him as Mr. MedTech because of his uh, fantastic posts on the medical device industry. His question is, what is Penn's top three talent retention points that drive employees to not only stay, but turn down opportunities that approach them during this pandemic? In other words, what makes people stay at Penn Medicine? I couldn't have, I couldn't have thought of a better question. So Giovanni, yeah. thank you for your question. What, what are those top three things? So uh, again, I, I first is the culture, and and it is a culture that spans. You know, I I, I went to every employee by, by video because we couldn't do town halls in person anymore, and I said I will get you whatever PPE you need, personal protective equipment, and we will spare no cost to make sure that you have all the PPE that's needed. At one point, we had 33 FTEs tracking down. Uh, personal protective equipment. So we wanted them to know when they arrived at work that our first our first and overarching was that they would be safe. Uh, we stood up a, a, a behavioral health app and it's been pinged now 50,000 times because you talk about a, a stressful time. I'm, I'm trying to take care of the patients in the emergency room. I'm worried about my, my dad who might have cancer and am I going to bring the germ home to him for a visit? I worry about my kids in school. I mean, you're talking about so many things being thrown at our employees at one time. So in 10 days, we, we stood up a uh, behavioral health app. Wow. And, and, you know, it, it's sort of like open table where it'll get you to a provider, virtual because we weren't, but it'll get you to a, a licensed social worker, a psychiatrist, whoever you need. Uh, just remarkably fast. And, and so culture, I think, is what keeps people there, number one. Interesting. The, the, the second thing that uh, keeps everybody there, I believe, is we, we make a lot of money. We're not ashamed of it. But we reinvest that money in resources. Mm. So we have very strong nurse ratios. We, we, we've spent a bloody fortune on EMR. People have the supplies they need to do their job because who who doesn't who wants to go in and not be able to do a, a fantastic job because you don't have enough supplies or you got to ask or you have to go through that and I, I think that um, so that would be number two number one would be we care for our employees and and they know it and and if they don't know it I'm not doing a good job second they have the resources they need to do their job and then third and I think it goes partly to our Quaker founding, but it is team-based. And and it is, um, whether it's team-based science, team-based care, and I think humans, I can tell you, I have missed more than anything over the pandemic being with other people. And and I think people want to belong to a team. And they, 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 they feel passionate when, I come into Founders 12, and I always come into Founders 12. I'm not getting moved around from unit to unit to unit. Like that's my home base, and that stability and that teamwork, I think, is is the third thing that um, that keeps people together. 
Absolutely. And I think, I think, you know, at the end of the day, even, you know, many of us, we go to high school, college, if you grew up here in America, I mean, the idea of having a team, you know, it's indoctrinated in all of us. And I think you're very lucky. You know, I'm lucky because I have that with Petrero. Um, but it seems like the employees at Penn, and at least this is me as an outsider observing, because um, you're not the only uh, Penn Med uh, connection I have. I had a couple of classmates from uh, medical school who did who did their residency there, and I have other employees at Penn who are, I'm connected with, and I got this sense from them, you know, that there's this this pride in team, pride in 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 the f- the flag that they that they're under, um, and I love that you just said because. You know, again, I've, I've interviewed many uh, healthcare executives over, over the last couple of years, you know, industry and whatnot. And of all the things that you could have picked, you, you picked culture first and then specifically you talked about behavioral health, which I think in the middle of a pandemic, right, that was the last thing on a lot of people's minds. But in, in fact, it was probably one of the most important things, maybe right after uh, controlling uh, risk of infection. What made you make that decision and how, how did you come, how did your team come around rallying to, to do that? Especially again, pandemic hit. So things are going awry. How did that happen? So I, I think our team, uh, it's not as diverse ethnically as we want it to be. And I'm working on that. Our leadership team needs to better represent uh, the, the workforce and the communities that, that we take care of. So, when I, I say we're diverse, it's not uh, diversity of ethnicity, but diversity of thought. Trust me, behavioral health wasn't the first thing that I thought of in, in the middle of the pandemic. But Dr. Bellini and our innovation center and, and human resources, like they, they, they banged me quick and said, we got to take care of this. And I said, go with it. And, you know, the supply chain people were all over the supply chain. So, our, our, our strategy of hiring exceptional people and, and putting them in a leadership team so that we're always poking, uh, poking at each other. That's not a great management term, but we're always, we're always, test, we're always testing each other um, because if you're just, if everybody was just like me, it wouldn't work. So, um, so Dr. Bellini and Dr. Maria and Quendo, um, the Innovation Center, you know, they, they quickly said we need to respond to um, the behavioral health part. I, I also, um, I think unique to our culture is we don't mind uh, following trends and stealing trends. So we, we benefited, and it's weird to say um, in the outbreak, but we benefited from New York City. New York There's City. wrong with that. New York City was overrun uh, before we did, and we were able to watch and learn. And uh, unfortunately, um, you know, a, a very young and beloved physician up in uh, New York City in the emergency room committed suicide. So it, it, we, you know, we didn't say that's never going to happen here. We said it did happen in New York, Italy, Spain. You know, it can happen here. So we we don't mind. Um, learning quickly from other people. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I never believe that things happen by coincidence. And I think that we live, you know, the world that we live in, the universe that we occupy works in a very interesting way. And, you know, with the pandemic hitting, you know, uh, the coronavirus, corona crown crowning like birth, and it's in the year of 2020, like vision. 
And you mentioned something earlier that, you know, the pandemic was kind of a, a bit of a catalyst to accelerate things that are already happening, there are trends. We've all known about uh, clinician. That means, you know, both physician and nurse and staff, burnouts, um, the rising uh, suicide rates with physicians, something that's, that a lot of people don't want to talk about. And it's being, you know, there's a lot of uh, um, lectures on it at conferences always been talked about, but not a lot of action. And so I, I admire and really applaud that your team recognize that immediately. And, you know, there's no saying that no one really knows how many people were saved, you know, from a mental health standpoint, right. even from a suicide standpoint, just from that, from that, that thing. Cause a lot of times people, they don't attend to these things because, because of access, you know? Um, and I think even for a physician, for me, I, I went to medical school. I have a father's a physician, you know, even me, when it came to mental health, you, you know, Many years ago, it was kind of like, well, I have to go to my uh, primary care. I have to get referred. I'm just not going to do that. And you made it accessible just from an app. And that by itself is huge. And, and our, our mental health providers who really stepped up and, and offered their services and virtually could, could see so many more patients than they could in the traditional uh, setup. And as you said, pre-certification and all the things you have to go through and uh, credit to them for um, for stepping up and helping us out. It's amazing. Now, you you I want to go back uh, to 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 Penn's culture, and I want to I'm I'm curious about specifically how it have impacted you. So, when you were a young man uh, back in the '90s and getting started, you know, surely you had someone who who was a mentor to you. Um, who were those mentors? What what kind of things did they teach you? What yeah. did they leave you with? No, so it's a it's a great question and one that I reflect back on um, often. And and with permission, I'll go back to 1978 when I actually first got into um, into healthcare. Um, I, I went to college and um, my first grade point average was 1.98. I made the dean's list. I tell everybody, but it was a dean telling you you can't stay at school. And I went to work for a landscaper. And I, I ran into a gentleman by the name of Bill Rouse, who is an incredible visionary. And he said, I want you to cut this cornfield down. I'm going to build offices out in the suburbs. And I'm like, that'll never work. Everyone goes in the center city to work. And he said, no, I'm going to change the world. And I, I spent, you know, three or four days with this man as a 19-year-old. And then I fell under the farm tractor and I was severely injured, which put me in the hospital. So I, I always say three things happened to me that summer. I met Bill Rouse, who said, you have to have a vision and you have to follow it. And that has carried me through. And, and people at Penn would tell you, I always have a, another building, another idea, another, and people shake their head, that's never going to happen. And it happens because Bill Rouse taught me, if you want to make it happen, you got to make it happen. Second, I ended up in the, in the hospital for uh, such a long time. I loved watching how that team of nurses and physical therapists and the person that delivered the food and, and the doctors and the surgeons, how they came together to take care of me. And I really, I wanted to be in that environment. It was too late to go back. I already established I wasn't a very good student. So STEM courses and biology and all that would never uh, have, have fit. So I, I quickly pivoted to hospital administration. Um, 
And then I also met my wife, who's been my, my coach and mentor throughout. But your point, Omar, is every position is built on what the person before taught you. Mm-hmm. And, and when I came to Penn in 1996, and Dr. Bill Kelly was the, uh, the CEO, and Bill taught me amazing things. And um, he, he taught me the force of, uh, uh, again, vision. He also taught me that if you don't pay attention to the money, it can get away from me in a hurry because we were, you know, full speed ahead and, and we ran into some financial difficulties in, in the late 90s. Um, a, a scientist by the name of Carl June would fit into my uh, mentorship. Um, Carl was an immunologist and he wanted to take, he was in the Navy, he was an immunologist and he really wanted to take care of uh, people with cancer. He arrived at Penn in 1996, the same time I did. And he said, I have this idea where I can use, turn the person's immune system into killing cancer. And in 2011, he published a Sentinel paper on how he did that. And then we were able to parlay that. We now have three drugs registered on uh, uh, cell therapy. But Carl, in 1996, man, nobody believed him. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure he believed it, but he kept pushing and pushing and pushing and painting that, that vision. So I've been blessed at Penn to have people of vision and, and, and people that are just unbridled and we can make the world a better place. And, and I rapidly joined that, that workforce. Wow. And with Dr. Bill Kelly, you know, the thing, you know, I, I was very fortunate. So when I, when I left medical school, I, I started at this amazing company, Missouri Robotics, it was the first robotic spine company. And I didn't, you never realized at the time, the caliber of mentors and people you work with until later on. And you look back and you said, oh my gosh. Yeah. And so, of course, some of the best moments that I had with my mentors, uh, one of them, uh, Christopher Sells, he was a legend in uh, our field, uh, unfortunately passed away uh, last year. But some of my best moments with him were moments that he told me things that, that hurt, that hurt a lot. And there's a saying that I don't know where, where I've heard this, but it says that, you know, maybe it's some military saying, I think, where it says, um, you know, you have to be ruthless with your enemies, but you have to be even more ruthless with those that you love. And so does with, with, with Dr. Kelly, did, is there anything that stands out in your mind, something that he told you that maybe it was very personal to you, something that he, he, he pointed out, a vulnerability in you, something that hurt, but because he did that and you were, became aware of it, it made you better as a person. Mm-hmm. As a leader. So, um, yes. And, and Dr. Kelly was always a believer in primary data. So I, I would bring, you know, a, a report on wait times in the, the clinics or and one of our metrics was the phone had to be answered in three rings. And I would say, you know, we made it 97.6% of the time. And he would say, show me the data. And I, I'd fumble around, I'd give him the data, and he'd look at it and he'd say, you know, your answer was correct, but it was insufficient because the range was, you know, X or, you know, it's skewed in this, this direction. And, and he taught me, um, he embarrassed me in front of everybody uh, in, in the boardroom with this point. But you have to have the curiosity maybe your word ruthless, you have to say to the person giving you the report, you know, like, 
are you sure? Like, here are 10 questions that I want you to answer on that data, not just take the PowerPoint. And back then, PowerPoint and, and you know, things were just starting to get invented. So you could run something on a, I think it was Lotus 1, 2, 3. Excel wasn't even invented yet. And it would spit out, it would spit out a graph and you could go show that graph. But if you didn't know what it meant, you, you weren't contributing to the discussion. So Bill Kelly, always know what the primary data is uh, telling you and, and don't be superficial. Um, uh, it, it, it was hurtful and uh, I, I took it to task. But you remembered it most importantly. And I think, you know, especially for very driven type A personalities, I think that we all had that moment where um, we get kind of a, a, a public flanking, but it was for our own good. And I think that, um, and I, at least with all the young professionals I mentor, I tell them that when those things happen, you have to be smart enough to detach your ego and anger from things and try and understand what exactly was this person trying to communicate? Because even, you know, and this is coming, I think, I think you can agree that all leaders, we make so many uh, mistakes that at least we're lucky enough to pay attention to in those small times where we were right, maybe 99% of the time, that 1% that we we're not we paid attention and that changed a little bit of our mental model of how we lead a change in the last. So you took over in July. So in the last uh, year uh, mm -hmm. of leading Penn, what were some of those, perhaps we can call them biases, those preconceived notions you had that you immediately paid close attention to a small detail and you say, Oh, I need to change that, that framework in my mind. Is there yeah. anything that sticks out? Um, so I, you know, I, I think there are, there are a couple things. Um, one, I'm a doer. Yeah, I, I like to do things. And when I stepped into the role, you know, I had to, I had to map out strategy and not, not so much on the doer side. And I, I've had to re resist some of my urges to to jump in on on things. So that was probably that today is still the hardest lesson for me. Um, uh, going, going forward. The second thing that I uh, learned quickly uh, when Hahnemann University was um, hospital was closing in Philadelphia and we had all the hospitals around the table and uh, the weight of representing Penn, uh, I could really feel like all eyes were turning to us as to how can you help us get out of this public health crisis in, in the city of Philadelphia. And you know, they didn't turn to some of the smaller hospitals because, you know, they couldn't help. And um, it was it was meaningful to me to, to realize um, how much Penn means to Philadelphia and how how much I was looked at as uh, the, the singular face of Penn. And uh, I, I so that that was probably the, the second thing. The, the very the very last thing, Omar, I just want to make sure. Um, you know, as we've gone through anti-racism and, and as we've gone through um, the, the upside down of the economy, it, it also, I, I have led a privileged life and it was a stark reminder to me that all 40,000 employees at Penn are looking to me and make sure that we continue to make money, that they continue to get their paycheck. We have a no layoff pledge. We didn't furlough anybody. And um, Wow. And and it was it was important that we 
we communicate to them that we are not just a healthcare provider, but we're looking out for, for them and their, their families. And, um, you know, we were able to do that. And I, um, I've been very pleased with everybody's response. Um, but that, that extra burden, perhaps I hadn't um, expected quite as much that, that people would, would turn to us and, 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 and look for us to, to put that in place. We started a million dollar employee assistance fund um, back in the middle of March when things really started to heat up. And it was a $500 grant to any employee that wanted it. And within 72 hours, we were over $3 million. So again, a, a stark reminder that uh, the, the, world, the world's tough for a lot of our employees and, and we need to we need to eliminate when we can the anxiety around, do I have a job? Is there going to be a layoff? Um, you know, what's the future like? And uh, I think we were able to convey that. Yeah, and you you mentioned it briefly, but I, I have to I have to go back and really point out to our audience um, the fact that you didn't furlough a single employee and you have a no layoff pledge to your employees. And again, um, I don't fault any um, any other hospital for what they had to do because every hospital is going to be different. Right. But in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, when these things are involved, there's a variety of ways that a uh, the CEO of a system and a board can justify. You know, we we should do this because we might we might we might end up with a, a loss this quarter. There's a variety of ways, but somehow uh, you and the and the board at Penn kept that promise, and I think that's that by itself. I think that that uh, uh, fact kind of tells me why there's a lot of lifers at Penn, a lot of people who stay around because there's a strong team and the leadership keeps their promises to employees. Right. How important is that as a hospital CEO well, to I, deliver on those kind of things? Yeah, I, I, I think it's critical. And um, uh, we learned it back in 1999 because we did a, a large layoff when we were losing money. And it took us years to recover. And People didn't believe in us. They, they weren't putting in that extra effort. They didn't, you know, the bloom was off the rose. So, mm. so we, we, you talk about learning things, you know, we learned in 99 that this was not the best way to, to solve the, um, the problem. I'll give you an example of how we did try to go about it. So how we got out in 1999 and the losses was we put in a, a heavily incented a compensation plan for our physicians. And for the last 20 years, it has served us really, really well. Until March 6th, when the, the governor of Pennsylvania says, no more elective surgery. And all of a sudden you have physicians saying, I wanna work, I wanna, I wanna do surgery, but I'm not allowed. Why am I taking a cut in pay? And a, and a huge cut, many of them were 30, 40, 50%. Right. Exactly. So, so we got a group of the, the faculty together along with uh, our, our leadership team. They come up with a, a plan. The plan uh, was no reduction uh, for 300,000 and below, 5% up to 500,000 and 10% over 500,000. And we got on a, a Zoom meeting and we presented it. And we, we probably had 26, 2700 physicians. And we answered every question in the chat room and, and we went through it. And I, I would be lying if I said everybody cheered. Um, 
but they understood, they accepted. The, the very last thing I said was, this is a withhold. This isn't a cut in your pay. If we can earn it back, we're going to give it to you. And in, in fiscal 20, on May the 4th, we started seeing patients again. And, and by the end of July, we were back in, in, uh, in the black and we restored that. It was worth about $30 million. So we restored that back to the, the physician. So I, I think in terms of leadership, we, we told them we have a hard decision to make. We also communicated transparently the way out. They delivered and, and we kept our promise. And, and I think that it would have been a lot easier for me to keep that 30 million in my pocket. You know, I would have looked better to the, the board. I would have looked better to the rating agencies, but it was a promise we made that if you, if we recover, you'll get your money back. And, and we were really pleased to, to restore that. That's unbelievable. And, you know, I, the theme that I keep hearing from you is when it's, when it's perfectly logical and justified to do what's easy and most beneficial, you don't, you do, you, you aim to do the hard thing, which is right, which is more fair. Um, and, and obviously, uh, making those kind of decisions, especially when there's a lot of money involved and in the middle of a crisis, it's very hard but I have to tell you, that's incredibly inspiring to hear. Um, and I can only imagine like uh, for a lot of those employees, because I'm sure many of them, whether it's physicians or staff or nurses, they may, they probably were not expecting that. Cause you, you, you look in the news. I mean, it's all over people yep. getting furloughed, uh, hospitals laying off employees. I know that my friends who are residents, they call me, we all call and talk to each other. Like, Oh, I got my pay docs 50% this much, et cetera. And so I'm sure many of them were expecting that, and yet that didn't happen. And you took it even f a step further by saying you you would compensate whatever whatever losses there were at the beginning, which you don't have to do. Yeah. Why? No, I mean we, it's a very virtuous cycle. Um, you know, we gave all the employees a thousand dollars in uh, the uh, end end of July paycheck, and you know, again, back to what we were talking about in terms of. Um, trying to take care of everybody, you know, a thousand dollars, if you're making uh, 70,000 a year, it is, it, it, it helps. It helps. You know, Absolutely. It, it may be a vacation for your family. It, it might've been, um, you know, a car payment or things that you needed, or you could clean up some bills so they weren't, but it, 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 again, I don't want to paint us as being Pollyanna's because it's a virtuous cycle because then the employees or committed that much more and they worked that much harder. And, and, um, and I'm just grateful for all the work that they did during the pandemic, the extra work, the thermal screening, the masking, the, the plexiglass shields, everything that we put in place that made their jobs harder. Um, and, and they, you know, they, they took it on without out complaint. I, I really love that. And, you know, especially for me, um, you know, so I'm, I'm a first generation American. My father is a surgeon from Iraq. My mother's from Turkey. And they taught me these kind of values. And, you know, I'm, I'm very proud to live in this country and the culture that's here. My wife is Turkish. And so she's, she's really embracing American culture. And this story you told me is, um, is, is a story of American values um, about doing what's right, what's fair, 
um, and, and helping, helping uh, fellow Americans. You know, my father did this many times in his business um, with patients, uh, same with my mother. And as a result, for me, you know, I try my best to make those decisions in the smallest way that I can. And so it's very, very inspiring, very refreshing to hear that um, we have, you know, a CEO of a, of a great American hospital who embodies that same kind of American values of doing what's right, what's fair, even though it's not easy. And I think that's a big part of being American. And, and uh, I agree. You know, we're also in the middle of the election season. A lot of concern and, you know, uh, several of our young doctors and employees have come forward with uh, the Vote ER campaign uh, that I think started at Mass General. Mm. And, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to make sure that um, people have an opportunity in the pandemic to participate in democracy, just as you said. I don't tell people how to vote, but I, I need them to vote because I, I think... I think we need to make sure that what our company, our country represents is what we want it to. And, and the way you do that is through the ballot box. So trying to make it easy on our employees to get mail-in ballots or understand how they, they, um, they can go through that is, is important. Absolutely. Uh, I want to make sure, I, I don't know if you have another question, but could I bring up uh, a topic that's important? Um, your topics? This is, this is your show. 100. I would love. I would love you to. Yes, I do have a, a, some more questions, but yeah, please go ahead. I would like so, you. To. Yeah. So one one of the things that we also learned during the pandemic is uh, the value of home care. Um, you know, our our nurses, we didn't miss any chemotherapy administrations. We did them at home, and and we sent the nurses in, in, into that. It cost us uh, a lot of money, but they they were willing to do infusions at, at home. And I'm trying to remind everybody now, let's not have muscle memory and go back to the way things were. Ah. So let's look at how, how things were during the pandemic. What was, what did we do right that we need to continue? And some of the things that you mentioned early on of remote monitoring. So we, we had COVID watch and we managed several thousand patients at home with a pulse oximeter, a blood pressure cuff, and you know, a, a chatbot that would check on them to make sure that they were submitting their their pulse ID. Because you know, COVID is one of those things where you're doing fine, and then all of a sudden you're in crisis. And we want, if the patient was going into crisis, we wanted to get them in into the hospital. So the the one trend that we we didn't talk about that I think is going to just be critical is much more remote monitoring, much around AI and chatbots to identify. The, the patient that needs our help as opposed to waiting for them to call us saying, I'm not feeling well. And, and I think we, I think we had some good examples of how that, that might work. Well, you actually read my mind because the question, so I'm going to read a quote to you about, about you, but it has to do with technology. And I want to talk a little bit more about this concept of home care, because I think it's a very important one. Um, and you're absolutely right. And this is the thing that I tell a lot of my peers because a lot of them, they, they, they're like, you know, when, this, when, when, it, when we go back to normal, I'm like, guys, we're learning a better way of managing medicine, doing business, all these things. There's no going back, right? This is going to be hard, but it's hard for a reason. So here's the, here's the quote, and I, I, I apologize because I don't have the person who said this. But when you took taken over as, as CEO, they said that you're a champion for ideas that become tomorrow's cures. And that you're somebody who supports small-scale startup efforts to larger commercial agreements. 
And it sounds like one of those things, and I want to, because you're, you're, you're an idea person, you're an innovator. So tell me more about this concept about even when the pandemic ends, how do you continue as a hospital and a healthcare system to not go back to the old way of like, okay, let's continue treating patients in, in the hospital. How do you go into people's homes where it's easier, comfortable, more convenient? Sure. It's going to be more expensive, but I, I, I'm going to make a guess that it, when we look at the data later on, it will be better. It, it'll, it'll definitely be better. Uh, as you mentioned, variable costs will be higher. You know, a, a nurse taking care of three infusion patients, my variable cost is much lower than, a, a, you know, one-on-one a nursing. The, the trick is I have this uh, um, infrastructure of buildings, and how do I repurpose those? So, you know, so I, I can capture that, that fixed cost investment that every hospital in, in America has made so that the, the variable cost um, uh, increase at, at home is uh, acceptable. So we're, we're working on that. We, we pride ourselves uh, at, at Penn. We were founded by uh, a pretty good inventor, Ben Franklin. And um, in, inventing, we think, is in our, our DNA and innovations in our DNA. So an, an example of uh, something we did is we set aside uh, $50 million in an investment fund. And as companies come along, uh, I already I already told you guys that I don't mind stealing ideas. Rather than us trying to build it ourselves, if somebody can uh, already is halfway there, I'd rather give them an investment and get it all the way there. And if it helps us, great. If it helps America, better. So uh, we we have probably brought in six hundred fifty seven hundred million dollars over the last. Um, uh, uh, three or four years in, in venture capital into Philadelphia. We, we call it Silicon Valley, which is cell and gene therapy and connected health. Mm-hmm. So uh, Silicon, and um, we are trying as quickly as we can to um, get things into the least expensive and most patient-centered location, which is always going to be the home or the iPhone or uh, a virtual uh, location. Reimbursement's not built that way, so we're fighting a lot of different trends, but um, we we do believe innovate your way forward is the only way we're going to get 20% of the GDP down to a more manageable number. Absolutely. Now, I have a few more questions. I want to be mindful of your time. Of course, I'm good on time, so I'll go as long as, as you can, but I do want to be mindful of your time. So a few questions. So, uh, Perfect uh, timing on this one. So one of my, uh, one of the gentlemen that I mentor, a uh, very sharp guy, he's a product manager right now in the industry, Omaid Azhand asked this, how is Penn Medicine working to make telehealth and digital care a more integrated part of the healthcare experience? This pandemic has shown us that telehealth not only alleviates barriers to care, but also reduces the cost and increases the quality. Looking forward to this, Omar. Yeah, so, um, that, that is the answer to the question is in the question. Tele, telemedicine, virtual medicine can't be ep- episodic and standalone. It has to be integrated into the entire care pattern. So not, not every visit can be a telemedicine visit. Um, so uh, a, a great example would be post-op surgery. 
So almost every post-op surgical visit can be uh, tele because in, unless you're having an infection, you, you know, you don't actually have to physically be with your, your surgeon. And if we're able to, to do that, it's easier. The patient didn't have to drive down. The doctor could see, you know, six o'clock at night when it fits into, into your schedule. But the, the new patient visit and the surgery had to take place in, in, in the hospital. So again, it's, it's one more tool in our toolkit. And, and how do you fit it in in a, that integrated, coordinated fashion? And, and I, I think that is the key. So I, I won't call out some of the national vendors that are um, providing telemedicine. I mean, they are worthy competitors, but I think our competitive advantage is that it's, it's a step in an integrated, coordinated care as opposed to one episodic, episodic visit. So that virtual visits in the electronic uh, medical record, just like all your physical visits were, your virtual visits are all in one place. So the doctor on the phone can see the entire, uh, the entire care that you're delivered as opposed to I just called somebody uh, and it's the first time that I'm meeting them. Got it. Now we got five minutes to the top of the hour. I know you're very busy. Do you have uh, five minutes more? Ten minutes? What What do we yes. have left? Let's go. Uh, let's go. Ten minutes to go to. Um, uh, All right. I know the audience is going to love that. We got an extra five minutes, so we're, we're very fortunate for that. So, why don't we use this to kind of jump into some interesting, uh, fun, rapid fire questions? Some of it from the audience. Some of it, uh, some basic ones that I I come up with. Only rule is is that you can answer these as as quickly or as long as you'd like. Okay. So my first question to you is this, is, you know, as a leader, uh, there's no shortage of amount of people who are reaching out to you for mentorship, uh, whether it's hospital CEOs, physicians, et cetera. What book do you most often gift to others and why? Um, So right now it's the Steve Jobs book uh, by Walter Isaacson. Uh, You could probably follow that up with any, any book by Walter Isaacson, I think, is uh, worth reading. Um, his book on Benjamin Franklin's another uh, provocative story. But I, I, um, I've had the privilege of meeting um, Steve Jobs' son and um, his wife, and I, I've long admired his um, approach. Um, so th- that's probably the one that I, I use the most. I was going to go through the Xerox uh, GUI interface, but he knew what he needed and he went and he got it and he, he brought it in. And I think most people probably don't realize that a lot of that early Apple was um, a Xerox uh, product, but, but he, he, you know, we, that drive, that, that, that push to, to, to change the world, I think is something that's embedded in, in Penn Medicine and what every leader should, uh, should have. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I want to highlight again, because you mentioned um, a few times during this interview, this uh, idea that you're, you have no shame in stealing ideas to make them better. And I think that's what, it, what real innovators do is that there's no ego about, you know, it came from here or there. Um, Sam Walton of Walmart, he stole everyone's ideas. And even the CEO of Kmart said, yeah, Sam stole everything from us and made it better. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's really important. So my, my next question to you is, for, for, for uh, new hospital CEOs and executives, what's the most common mistake you see them making 
in terms of what they're trying to develop themselves into or things that they're learning? What's a common mistake that you would, you, you've learned from your past and you would like to gift to those people to say, make sure you don't do this? Yeah. So it, it, it's easy that the, the, the triangle is, uh, the pyramid's inverted. Everyone thinks, you know, I'm going to get to the top and everyone's going to listen to me. And it's actually the other way around. A lot of people call it servant leadership or things like that. But to, to have a position like mine is just an incredible privilege that so few people are ever gifted. So I don't think of myself as special. I think of myself as being the most fortunate person around that I'm able to uh, lead uh, this organization. But Again, I don't see myself at the, the top of the, the pyramid. I see it as the other way. And as we mentioned, sometimes it, it's weighty. Um, you know, if you think about you're at the top of the pyramid, it's pretty, pretty easy. If you think about it, it's the other way around. You have a lot of people counting on you day in and day out to do the right thing. And, and that, that humility and, and um, uh, uh, lack of hubris. And again, to, to recognize that leadership is a privilege, um, I, I think is, the best way to approach it. And when you think you earned it, that's when you start getting into, uh, into trouble. Interesting. And I like that concept of the pyramid. It's the first time I heard it, but at least from a physics standpoint, that makes a lot of sense because essentially all the weight and mass of the organization is focused in a singular small surface area for, for a lot of pressure. I do like that. That's actually, I never heard that. That's a really good way to look at it. Okay. Um, so my ne- next next question to you is, and I, we talked about this earlier uh, with with doctor uh, uh, with with one of your mentors. But in your life, and this could be a mentor, this could be a parent. What was the most memorable thing someone's ever told you, and how did that impact you as a person? Um, the number one. I'm 61 years old. There's been and there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, but something probably came to mind first. Whatever, what's the first thing that came to mind? That's that's the key, I think. Yeah. So I I I think it's probably um, two things. The 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 first night, November tenth, nineteen seventy nine, when I met my wife, um, and we we were instantly uh, together, and that's probably my most memorable uh, night for sure. I think I think the thing that convinced me that maybe I was better than I, I thought of myself was uh, my dad wasn't very affectionate or very outgoing. And, and one time my mom said to me, you know, your dad really thinks very highly of you. And I was like, really? Because, you know, like I never, he, that wasn't something that he would um, express. And, and that made me feel better about myself and, and started to build some of that uh, self-confidence that you need to be a leader. Interesting. Did that, and, I have two questions, but I, I just have to ask, did that experience, the way it felt, did that influence you as a leader in terms of how you give um, uh, uh, po- positive feedback and, and, and appreciation to, to others? Yeah. No, no, for sure. And, um, you know, I hope if you asked anybody that um, works with me, that they would, um, they would repeat that, you know, I try to, encourage and I try to give credit. I try not to take credit and to make sure that people, you know, when I, I, I don't sleep much and when I'm emailing people at four o'clock in the morning and they answer me at four or five, I'm like, you don't have to do this. And you, know, Very you, smart. Don't, you, you don't, you don't have to, to mirror me. Um, 
So I, um, I, I do think it, uh, it, it happens. Uh, when I was at Bryn Mawr Hospital, uh, Bob Widener, uh, who still works with me down at Penn, uh, but Bob would always say, anytime you're given um, feedback, you, you need three positives to every negative. So that three to one ratio, and, and I think that's probably about right. And if I don't have three positives to, to say when I want to perhaps be harsh, then, you know, I, I try not to say it. So maybe it is tied. We'll have to get one of the psychiatrists into whether it's tied to my dad or not. <laughs> so now I'm going to flip, I'm going to kind of flip that question on you a bit. So one thing that many people notice, whether it's, it's with leaders or, or, or executives, they already have everything. So there's really nothing you can give them that they need, but there's a lot of things that they appreciate. And I think the one thing I, I always tell people is that for, for your organization, whoever your CEO is, they very rarely get a thank you or an appreciation or even a shout out on social media. Um, my, the CEO of my company, Joe Urban, a remarkable, remarkable leader. I, <laughs> I never met, miss an opportunity to, sh- to highlight, uh, highlight him. And I think that's a big reason why our, our employees are so mission-driven and loyal to, to, to the company to him. As, as a leader of, of Penn Medicine, what's something that you most appreciate? Like if someone said, said, said to you, hey, um, so-and-so really appreciates you for what you did, like what's something that you really love and appreciate, whether it's, I don't know, them commenting on a post on social media or what, what would that be? And I need you to be a, like a little bit selfish here. You have, you have permission to be a little selfish. Yeah. So I, I, um, I'll, I'll use a pandemic uh, example. You know, we're all wearing masks now. So I, I pride myself on knowing uh, every employee. And um, you'd be amazed at how many of those 40,000 people I, I can uh, identify and, and call on a first name basis and talk to. And then all of a sudden we're wearing masks and I'm wearing a mask. And so I put on my sunglasses, you know, like I'm, I'm incognito. And <laughs> So I, I think the best gift anybody gave me is even when they don't know who I am and I'm walking through the, the facility, somebody's still smiling or winking or, um, you know, asking me if I need directions. And um, there was an invisibility because, you know, we weren't wearing suits and um, didn't have the entourage. And going in and out of the facility during the pandemic and have people treating me um as nice as they did, even though I don't think they knew who I was, um, was very, very rewarding um, to me because I I think that means when I'm not around, they're treating other people that way. I love that answer. That's wonderful. I really love that. Uh, I am, uh, the the whole mask um, discussion would be a whole nother hour podcast. But I, I am also that proud means, of That just means I have to have you back then. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you, you, you know, um, public health is something that we've underinvested in, in, the, in the nation. And whether it's the mask, some of the things that we have to put into place, we need to get back to public health needs to be much more important than it has been um, over the last several decades. And, and hopefully this will be a chance for us to get back there. Absolutely. Last two, and I'm going to give them to you both at the same time so you can choose which one you'd like to answer and how long. Okay. Uh, first question is for, for, my, for my peers, 
Um, what's your What's your advice uh, and message to the you know health tech, medical tech, medical device uh, industry in terms of how they move forward in terms of supporting hospitals like mm-hmm. yours with great technology and, and, and innovation that's going to change and elevate the standard of care. And the second question is probably my most, it's, it's the one I enjoy the ask the most is that if you had a billboard, okay, that goes in front of every single hospital throughout the country and it stays there for one year, every single hospital employee is going to read that billboard. What message would you put on that billboard? So I'm going to let you pick which one you'd like to answer first. Um, I'll go with the billboard and, and I, I will go with blessed are the healers because we, we, the human condition, we're all, all going to be there someday. I, I don't know if you're getting that feedback, Omar. Oh, no, no, I, I heard you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, we all are going to end up needing someone to take care of us and, and healing is a, a mission that I think is just, um, you know, it, it, it's incredible that people are willing to take care of each other, people they don't know. It's easy to take care of your loved ones, but to take care of people you don't know. So blessed, blessed are the healers. And um, I, I just admire everybody. You know, we call them healthcare heroes during the pandemic. And I did a couple things for the nurses. And I'm like, you know, I don't know where everybody's been because you've always been my hero. So I'm glad the world is waking up that healthcare workers are special. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Well, in, in terms of the med tech. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I should have asked you uh, one after the other. I was like, that was such a, that was such a fantastic, fantastic billboard message. Like now let's pivot to, to the, to the technology. Yeah. Side. No, but it's really, um, it, it's really important. And uh, you know, people coming to my office, I want to be your partner let's be a partner. We should be a partner. And I'm like, what are we going to share risk? No, I, I just, great wanted answer. To, <laughs> I just wanted you to buy, you know, uh, equipment or a product from me. It, 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 the best way to approach us is how do we get the total cost of care down? Because the unit cost at Penn is always going to be more expensive than local hospitals. But if the total cost, so proton therapy, we the world's largest proton therapy center. It's always going to be more expensive than IMRT or radiation, uh, photon radiation. But we strongly believe and we've demonstrated that the total cost of care is lower. Mm. So if, if someone comes to me with a, a piece of med tech and they want me to buy it, the easiest way to my heart and my pocketbook is we can reduce, implementing this will reduce the total cost of care. That's very, very good advice. And I think, again, the big thing about the pandemic, and it's happened in the last few years, is that the medical industry, especially people who are in marketing and sales, they have to elevate themselves to the position of a CEO of a hospital to understand what are the problems that they're facing? Because it is a harder question to answer, and it's more complicated, but that's the world we're living in. And personally, at least for me, I don't believe in working for, a cool, for companies that just have a cool widget that's going to make healthcare more expensive. You know, if you can't answer that question, my peers are going to get really angry when I says, if you can't answer that question uh, directly or even walk it through critically, you're at the wrong company. So, well, okay. 
Kevin, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I'm gonna I'm uh, I'm gonna stop this for a second, but hang on for one second. We have to take okay. a uh, Zoom selfie together. But right. thank you so much for your time and and incredible wisdom. So. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And one last, actually, now one last question: How can people find you online? I know you have a Twitter and you have a LinkedIn. What, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, at Kevin B Mahoney. Perfect. I'll leave that in the show notes. All right. Stay around for one second. Thank you all for listening. And this has been another episode of Hills and Valleys. We'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Hills and Valleys. If you haven't already, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on our podcast. That way you're notified of new episodes as they're released. And if you're not already, Please go ahead and follow Potrero Medical on all our social platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And we'll see you next time.